This morning, we come to the end of chapter 1, Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. We've already seen throughout this first chapter Paul's thanksgiving and joy, which comes through his uh, partnership with the Philippians in the gospel, the joy of knowing Christ, and how he has said that his chains and his imprisonment has served to advance the gospel, so he rejoices even in that. And now we come as that gospel theme continues, verses 27 through 30. Uh, before we read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we open up Your Word this morning, I pray that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit. Lord, we have already been and come into Your presence to worship, and we've sung songs of praise, and we have offered our confessions before Your throne. And now, O oh Lord, we ask that our hearts would be ready to receive Your Word. O oh Lord, a challenging word. And I pray that you would give us hearts to receive it correctly. Lord, cultivate our hearts to receive the deep truths of your word. That they may shape us and fashion us and lead us into a deeper brand of discipleship. That we may be transformed, O oh Lord, according to your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit in us in such a way that it would be for our good and for your glory. Lord, do your work in us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. The Apostle Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You may be seated. Winston Churchill once said, a kite flies against the wind, not with it. And to be a Christian in the world is to be like a kite flying against the wind. The call to follow Christ is a call that, that promises opposition. To be citizens of heaven is to be aliens in a world driven by, by values and by, by ideas and by ideologies and philosophies that contradict ours. And so we will always find ourselves flying against the wind, uh, opposed by those who do not embrace Christ as Lord, but who in fact embrace other things, most often self, as Lord. And so there will always be a clash. There will always be opposition. 
And as we enter into our text this morning, we, we find that, that the whole text is, is saturated with language of, of battle and opposition. And so the, the message is clear that as followers of Jesus in the world, we will endure hardship and struggle. We will be criticized and slandered. We will be mistreated and alienated. And it may uh, come in many different forms, some more severe and, and worse than others, but we will face opposition. And Paul tells us in this text how to respond when the opposition comes. And so the, we have to read these words in that context of opposition. There's that, that, that's the light that is kind of being shed on, on, on all these, on every phrase in, the, in this uh, text. And so Paul tells us how to live as disciples in response to this context of opposition. And he calls us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. That's really the, the main imperative on which the rest of the text hangs. He says, live lives worthy of the gospel. He says in verse 27, whatever happens, that is, whatever opposition you may endure, whatever is thrown your way, whatever enemies you encounter, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that phrase, conduct yourselves, is a translation of a Greek word that, that means, uh, really, it's, it has the word polis at the heart. Polis meaning city or city-state. It means to live as citizens. And so Paul is saying that we are to live in a way that is fitting and appropriate as citizens of heaven. A way that faithfully represents Christ and his kingdom. A way that shows all the world that we live under the lordship of Christ. Just as the Philippians were a Roman colony... Uh, often the, you know, far away from Rome, and they were to live as Roman citizens to show the people around them they were, in fact, allegiance to Rome and citizens of Rome and reflected Rome in all that they did. So too, Paul says, you as believers are to live as citizens of heaven in an alien land, showing all the world that we live under the lordship not of Caesar, but of Christ. See, this is our goal as Christians, to, to run the race of faith through all the corridors of hostility and hatred in such a way that at the end of the race, it will be said of us, you have lived a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have lived in such a way that, that you reflect Christ himself, that you re represent well the values and the message of the kingdom. And the question then before us this morning is, is what does that look like? What, what does a life worthy of the gospel look like? What are the distinguishing marks or characteristics of a life worthy of the gospel, particularly in the face of opposition? And Paul tells us what it looks like in our text this morning. He identifies three distinguishing marks of a life worthy of of the gospel. And the first one is this that a life worthy of the gospel is marked by standing firm in unity. If you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, Paul says, then I will, sh I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel is a life lived in unity with fellow believers, standing firm as one against our opponents. There was a movie that came out a lot longer ago than I realized. I thought it was only not that long, but it was about 20 years ago now. The movie came out uh, called Gladiator. 
And the movie is set in the second century Roman Empire, and the main character is a, a, a Roman uh, general named Maximus, and he's played by Russell Crowe. And through a series of scandals and tragedies, Maximus ends up a prisoner condemned to death, and he's trained to become one of the gladiators. And the gladiators, of course, are those who, who uh, were put into arena, and they would fight to death in front of these large crowds and uh, for entertainment in the Roman Colosseum. And in his first battle as a gladiator, Maximus finds himself in the arena with a group of his fellow gladiators, and their opponents are behind closed gates. And so they don't know who or what their opponents are going to be, so they're all, the, the gladiators are kind of in the middle of the arena just kind of waiting for their opponents, for the gates to be lifted and the opponents to come out. And as they're waiting, Maximus kind of gathers his fellow gladiators together, and he says to them, he says, whatever comes out of these gates, we've got a better chance of survival if we work together. If we stay together, he says, we survive. And the gates are opened. And their opponents are revealed, and it turns out to be this, this, uh, this horde, of this barbarian horde, this, uh, uh, warriors on horses and chariots with bows and arrows and weapons, and they're surrounding the gladiators in the arena and the battle the battle rages on. And as the battle goes on, Maximus keeps urging his fellow gladiators to be united, to lock their shields together, and to stay as one. It's only as they do that that they're able to win that first battle. And that's really the, the image that Paul has in mind here in our text as well, that the language he uses is that of combat. That phrase, striving together, is a translation of a Greek word that, that means to struggle or to contend together against an opponent. It's, it's war, battle, language. The life of discipleship is a life of battle, and we're not meant to do the battle alone. We, we have to do the battle together. We need to stand firm together. We need to stay as one as we battle whatever comes out of the gates. And of course, it takes work to do that, doesn't it? I mean, unity doesn't just come naturally. It's, it's, a, it's something we have to, to work at and strive for. It takes listening to each other. It takes cultivating compassion for one another and setting aside petty differences and disagreements and, and practicing mutual respect where we don't agree or see things eye to eye. It means striving to understand each other and not jumping to judgments. And the call to unity is a call to die to our own agendas as we link arms to face our common enemy. And that's really what we've been striving to do, what I've been praying that God will be doing in us as a church to make us one, to bring us together, to draw us together. And in the end, it's a call to humility and selflessness, which is what we'll see as Paul will go on in chapter 2, so we'll get to that next week. But a life worthy of the gospel is marked by standing firm in unity. The second mark of a life worthy of the gospel is contending in fearlessness. The unity to which we are called is a courageous unity. Uh, the, the faith that brands us is a fearless faith. Paul says to stand firm Verses 27 to 28, stand firm, striving together. There's that, that phrase again, contending together, battling together, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
You see, following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. If we follow Jesus authentically, we will encounter adversaries who who hate what we stand for. We will have to stand against a majority culture that embraces lies and despises truth. We will come face to face with imposing and intimidating voices that will try to break us to accommodate to their ways. In fact, that word, uh, that word frightened is a little bit of an unusual word. It's not the typical word that Paul would use for fear, but it's a word that has heavy connotations of intimidation. Being intimidated by, by a strong or powerful force. And Paul says that a life worthy of the gospel is a life that doesn't bend or break under that weight of intimidation. It's a life that stands firm, contending in fearlessness. I mentioned, I think it was a few weeks ago now, how Lori and I had been reading, we just finished it not that long ago, but reading the biography of Mary Slusser, who was a Scottish missionary to Africa. And when, uh, in 1862, when uh, Mary Slusser was just 14 years old, she began teaching Bible classes in Dundee, Scotland. And her classroom was in the heart of uh, one of the slums of Scotland. In fact, it was the heart of probably the, the worst slum, which was the stomping grounds of some of the roughest gangs of Dundee. And one evening on her way to Bible class, she was assaulted by four teenage boys. And, and so two of the boys held her arms, and a, the third boy, the, the leader of the gang, began taunting her. He pulled her red hair, and he called her carrots, and then he took out a weapon from his pocket. And it was this, it was this heavy piece of metal with razor-sharp uh, edges, and it was tied to a string. And began swinging that piece of metal around and around and getting closer and closer to her face. And he told her that this was a form of of Chinese torture. And he said that if she stopped all of her Bible teaching, because they didn't want that Bible stuff in this part of town, if if she just stopped her Bible teaching and went home, he said he would let her go. But if she didn't, he said she would find out what that Chinese torture was all about. And as the metal came closer and closer to Mary's face, this little 14-year-old red-haired girl didn't back down. And she said to the boy, she said, do, do whatever you want to me, but you'll not give me, get me to give up my Bible teaching. And the boy kept on swinging the metal, getting closer and closer until finally it gouged a cut straight across her forehead and blood began to stream down her face. But even then, this 14-year-old girl didn't cave in. And with blood streaming down her face, she stared directly at the boy. And the boy was so shocked by her response that he said to his friends, let's let her go. She's a tough one, boys. And they let her go. And the boy said he'd never seen anything like that. People would always back down. They would always cave to his intimidation, his methods of, of... of intimidation, but not Mary. And Mary then went on to invite those four boys into her Bible class, and by the end of that night, the leader of the gang, that boy who had cut Mary's forehead with that, with that weapon, had repented and received Christ as his Savior. That's one little glimpse of a life worthy of the gospel. A life that that stands firm, contending in fearlessness. A life that doesn't back down or cave in to intimidation. As uh, Kierkegaard put it, there is a distinction between 
followers of Jesus and mere admirers of Jesus. The admirer, Kierkegaard said, never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. And though in words and phrases and songs he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ, he renounces nothing. And he will, he will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires, but not so the follower. The follower aspires with all of his strength to be what he admires. The follower recognizes the cost of discipleship and is willing to pay it. And it makes me wonder this morning, are we followers of Jesus or are we simply admirers? What kind of followers are we? Are we the kind of followers who recognize the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay it? Do we really know what it means to contend for the faith of the gospel in fearlessness? You see, I think the Christianity that, that, that most that not all, but that most Americans know is a long way from the Christianity of the gospel. Because many Americans have embraced a Christianity that is, that is comfortable and soft, a Christianity that is sheltered from real hardship, a Christianity that allows us to gather with our friends and to sit in our padded seats and to sing feel-good songs without ever really having to stand up for anything. In the language of Aldous Huxley, in his brave new world, we have come to embrace and expect a Christianity without tears. But you see, Paul in this text, and Christ himself throughout the Gospels, calls us deeper, to a deeper brand of discipleship. It doesn't mean that we're to go out looking for hardship and, and looking for opposition, but it does call us out of the, the comfort and safety of our own little spiritual ghettos that we tend to stay in. It means we must not remain idle when the gospel commands us to go. We must not remain complacent when the gospel bids us to act. We must not remain silent when the gospel compels us to speak. A life worthy of the gospel is by contending in fearlessness. That brings us then to the third and final mark, which is really, I think, the most challenging of them all, and that is that the third mark of a life worthy of the gospel is embracing suffering as a gift. Paul says in verses 29 to 30, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Well, the struggle that Paul is talking about is the, the beating and the imprisonment that he endured. If you remember from Acts chapter 16 when he first came to Philippi and they saw how he was uh, attacked by, and, and, and rioted and, and dragged out in the courts and beaten with rods and then thrown into prison. And now he is still in prison in Rome. That's the struggle that he's talking about. And now the Philippians are going through the same thing that he endured. But notice how Paul describes the suffering. He says, It has been granted to you to suffer for Christ. And to be honest, I was kind of taken aback in my translation this week when I was sitting down with my Greek text and I was going through the translation and everything was going fine. And then I come to this word and it's a word that kind of stopped me in my tracks. Because it's not the word that you would expect in this context. You, you know, Paul might have said that, that it has been given to you to suffer, or it has been allowed by God to suffer, has been permitted by God to suffer, but he used instead the Greek word charisma. 
which means to give graciously and generously. It's a word that's used to describe the giving of a gift that's rooted in grace, a gift that's given as, a, as an expression of, of goodwill and undeserved favor. In fact, it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 8, verse 32, where he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he, he, also along, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. In other words, he who gave the best gift of all will not withhold the lesser gifts, these gifts rooted in grace, these gifts that are out of his good favor and his good will for us, his, his gifts to us. And now Paul uses that same word here in Philippians. And so he says to the persecuted Philippians that God has graciously given you this gift of suffering for Christ. A couple days ago, Lori, my wife Lori, offered uh, our dog Ruby a treat. And Ruby knows the word treat, and she loves treats. She's a golden retriever. She loves food. She loves treats. And so she, with delight, came running into the kitchen to receive her treat, and then she took it in her mouth and then she realized what the treat was. It was a green bean. <laughs> she doesn't like green beans. And so she, t she took that treat in her mouth and then she dropped it. And she got so depressed and so dejected and so disappointed in her treat that she laid down on the ground next to it and just moped for a half hour. <laughs> and maybe that's kind of how we feel about what Paul says here. God says, I've graciously given you a gift, a gift that's rooted in my grace, a gift that is out of my goodwill, and my, it is a gift of undeserved favor to you. Receive this gift of grace, and it's the gift of suffering. And we think, well, well, what kind of a gift is that? In our therapeutic culture that exalts comfort and does everything to avoid pain, there's nothing more scandalous than these words of Paul. I mean, how can we possibly embrace suffering as a gift? Endure suffering, maybe. Be equipped to have the strength to withstand it, okay, but, but it, to embrace it as a gift. Well, well, the answer to how we can do that is found really in the heart of Paul's theology and in the heart of his letter to the Philippians, and, and it is this. We can only embrace suffering as a gift if we believe in the depth of our being what Paul himself believed, which is this, that everything in life, that everything in life is rubbish in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the only possible way in which it makes sense to receive suffering as a gift. Because if knowing Christ Jesus is, in fact, the greatest thing, then suffering can be embraced as a gift because it is through suffering that we know Christ more intimately. It was through suffering that Paul experienced the power of Christ made perfect through his weakness. As he recounted to the Corinthians all that he endured, whipped with lashes, beaten with rods, pelted with stones, shackled in chains, shipwrecked and starved. And it was through suffering that he came into a deeper and more intimate knowledge of Christ and his power. 
And so he was able to say to the Corinthians, I, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, he says, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Russian novelist and philosopher who was imprisoned for speaking out against communism. And he and his fellow inmates were beaten and humiliated and deprived and made to live in filth in these lice-laden rooms and freezing temperatures. And yet, as he looked back on his years of imprisonment, this is what he wrote. He said, I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say sometimes to the astonishment of those around me, bless you, prison, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. Like Paul, he had come to embrace suffering as a gift. You see, in many ways, I think suffering is the litmus test of true faith. Suffering is the wedge that separates true followers of Jesus from mere admirers. As one writer put it, much of popular Christianity has become a shallow self-help cult whose chief aim is not cultivating discipleship, but rooting out personal anxieties. Lord, give me a life that's free from suffering. That's the, the aim of this shallow brand of Christianity. The faith of martyrs, he says, is a far cry from the therapeutic religion of the middle-class suburbs and from the health and wealth message of prosperity gospel churches. And he says these and other feeble forms of the faith will be quickly burned away in the face of the slightest persecution. And so it begs the question, what kind of faith do we have? What, what kind of faith do you have? Is it the feeble form of faith that will be burned away in suffering? Or is it an authentic faith that will be refined and strengthened through it? The kind of faith that can say with Paul, I embrace the suffering as a gift. And by the way, I have seen it. I've been inspired by that mindset, not only in Paul, but in many of you, as I've watched you endure suffering in different ways, and I have seen you receive it as a gift and respond to it with faith and grow in your faith and be strengthened through it. And I have been personally inspired by that. A life worthy of the gospel is a life that embraces suffering as a gift. Whatever happens, Paul says, whatever comes to the gates, conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ by standing firm in unity and contending in fearlessness and embracing suffering as a gift. You see, these words of Paul call us, don't they, to a deeper discipleship, to a Christianity that moves beyond what is comfortable and safe. In the end, these words of Paul call us to a deeper pursuit of Christ himself. Because it's only in union with Christ that we can accomplish any of these things. The, the, the goal of this text is not to drive us inward, to, to say, well, I need to do better at this, I need to be better at that. The goal is to drive us to Christ. For it's only in union with Christ 
that we are empowered to stand firm in unity. It's only in union with Christ that we are emboldened to contend in fearlessness. It's only in union union with Christ that we are enabled to embrace suffering as a gift. In one of uh, Shakespeare's plays, Prince Henry is about to receive the crown of his dying father. And in that moment where he's the, the crown is going to go from his father t- to him. He's overwhelmed with a sense of unworthiness because he realizes in that moment that, that he's receiving this crown through no virtue of his own. And he says to his dying father, as the crown is about to be given, he says, you won it, wore it, kept it, gave it to me. This is how we live lives worthy of the gospel. We die to ourselves and we surrender our whole being to Christ. We humbly acknowledge that our inheritance, this beautiful inheritance that we will receive, that it rests not on ourselves and on our effort, on our work, but on the one who ran the race ahead of us. And it's then that we can say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And on that day, knowing that the crown is not ours by right or by merit, we will say to Christ, you won it, and you wore it, and you kept it, and now you've given it to me. To God be the glory. Let's bow together. Oh Lord, as we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response this morning, I pray that as we come silently before you, that you would draw us nearer to you, that you would lead us, oh Lord, to a deeper discipleship, That you compel us, O Lord, to do the hard work of standing together in unity and contending together against opponents in fearlessness and embracing suffering as a gift. O Lord, draw us to you. Because it's you and you alone that can do that work in us. Lord, we offer ourselves to you as we hear our silent prayers of response and surrender this morning. Oh, Lord, whatever happens, 
whatever opposition we endure. May you, Lord Jesus, so live in us and so dwell in us that we live lives, that we conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Lord Jesus, draw us nearer as we labor through the storms that we will be called to go through. Reign in us, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.